This is Writing Excuses, Season 2, Episode 7, Using Formulas, with our friend Bob Defendi. Fifteen minutes long, because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Howard. I'm Dan. And I'm Bob. Bob is joining us because at the time we recorded this, Brandon was on book tour. But right now, Brandon's back. And in a body-sized closet in my basement. <laughs> well, a new house. I had to try it out. Well, even if he weren't, though, I doubt he will ever listen to this podcast. Let's, I, was I was that a cask that. of Amontillado joke? That, well, or yes, a little bit. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, speaking of cask of Amontillado jokes, okay, this seg's going to be kind of rough. We're talking about formulas. <laughs> We're talking about formulas and when to use them. Uh, Dan, what am I talking about when I say formulas? Formula, you're talking about the, uh, the basic patterns that show up in, uh, in stories, whether that's three-act format, whether it's something like uh, the hero's journey, um, kind of a, a very wide um, general outline slash guideline that a story is going to follow. Okay. Bob, when, when do we use formulas? Most all the time. On purpose? Uh, not necessarily, but... A formula is a formula because it contains all of the elements that we um, expect from a story. If you see a story and you say, wow, that was really predictable, it might be because they flubbed some part of the formula. And, uh, okay, now I'm, I'm confused because if the formula is, contains the things that we expect and you use the formula right, wouldn't that make the story predictable? I set that up well, didn't I? Uh, <laughs> Dan, I think, think Bob, so. is, Bob is schooling us, Dan, and we just so. started. But one of the elements of the, of the formula is surprise your reader. So if you skip that, for instance, in the three-act three structure, there's always a twist in the middle. If you don't have a twist in the middle, every, the plot will seem very linear. And by the time okay. you get to the end, everybody will say, well, you know, it just kind of petered along where it started, nothing really surprised me, nothing really changed, nothing really challenged now, now, me. Now, now let's make the point clear here that when we're talking about formulas, we are not talking about cliches. That is and uh, in a lot of cases, I think when something seems predictable, it's because they did the formula wrong and turned it into a cliche. And in many ways, that's what a cliche is. It's just a formula that's been done a million times the same way or very poorly, very unskillfully. So when you say a formula has been done a million times the same way, we, we talked earlier about uh, the, the farm boy leaving on a quest and you know, saving mm -hmm. the world. Uh, we've seen it in Luke Skywalker. We've seen it in, uh, okay, name some other farm Robert boys for Jordan. me quick. Robert Jordan. Robert Jordan, Aragon. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to that because I think that's a, that's a great tool. And I mean tool in the good use of oh, the word. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> the, uh, being a great tool. Uh, the, so a cliche is when you take the formula. The formula is not farm boy saves the world. The mm -hmm. formula is, unless I'm wrong, wrong, that's the hero's journey. Correct. Probably, yeah. That's probably yeah. the hero's journey. When you take that formula and say, well, gosh, the hero has to come from humble beginnings, and what could be more humble than a lowly farm boy? And, exactly. <sighs> yeah. It, it's, and that's where you become a the, cliche. The, the hero's journey is what uh, we English majors call an archetype. It's something that's been around forever, 
and you can find that hero's journey of the young, you know, the whether it's young or whether it's poor or whether it's stupid or whatever humble beginnings humble this beginnings. character starts from, they will overcome that and eventually, you know, defeat the bad guy. And that is an archetype that has existed since time immemorial. But where it becomes a cliche is where it's a farm boy who, you know, does the same things that Luke Skywalker did and the same things that everyone else has done. The, the pig an, keeper in yeah, uh, yeah, the in, Horned in, King. Exactly. Yeah. And let's give an example of taking that exact same formula and do something really different with it. Okay. I'm listening to an audiobook right now to uh, The Mirror of Her Dreams by um, Donaldson. And it's the exact same story. She comes from a humble beginning, but she's the daughter of a very, very rich man. Um, she works a charity job because she, does, she doesn't need money. You know, she, by all financial um, ratings, she's not from a humble beginning, but she's so meek. She has been convinced she's so worthless that she doesn't even really believe she exists. She's that, she has that low self-esteem, and that makes her an incredibly humble character. And so she's following, I'm assuming, I'm not to the end of the book yet, she's following <laughs> that same uh, kind of hero's journey growth through her story as the farm boy does, but Donaldson kind of took it and turned it on. But it doesn't feel like a cliche. Exactly. And by the same token, you've got uh, Brandon's uh, first, the first book of the Mistborn trilogies. Vin mm -hmm. is filling the humble character role, and she's mm -hmm. a, a thief, you know, street rat. And... And that's not cliche because we've only seen that done a couple of times. Aladdin is <laughs> right. the well, other example yeah, but, that but, leaps but to mind. The, the big thing that keeps it from becoming a cliche is that he is following the formula in that here's this humble character, but you know the, the surroundings are different. It's a new setting. He's the invented a new has context to do and all different that. things. Exactly. The character has different powers that he, she uses to solve different conflicts. So even though the formula for Mistborn is essentially the formula for Star Wars and the formula for Cinderella and the formula for anything else that uses the hero's journey, the trappings are completely different and that keeps it very fresh. If I, if I use another Sanderson example, do you guys have to start humming the... No, we've done away with No, if you use your own, <laughs> then <laughs> right, maybe right. we will. Well, because I was going to say Elantris, you could make the same argument. Um, you know, the main character is a prince, but by the first sentence mm -hmm. of chapter one, he is in the most humble situation you can be in in that world. That is correct. Um, let's take a moment for the benefit of our listeners and enumerate some formulas. Just throw out names. We've talked about three act. Mm -hmm. We've talked about uh, the hero's journey. Romance. Boy meets girl. Boy loses girl. Boy gets girl back. Okay. Um, what else we got? Uh, there's one that I, I kind of think of as the two act format. Uh, where the first half of the story, the heroes are reacting to the villain, and in the second half, they take the active hand and the villain starts reacting to them. Okay. Um, our friend uh, Dan Willis, who happens to be standing over here in the corner, shout to us, Dan. Hello. Uh, Dan has talked to us before about the three-disaster format. Um, and Bob, I think you mentioned when we were talking about uh, Lawrence Schoen's Buffalito stories, uh, talked about the tri-fail Cycles. Yes, yes, because uh, generally to make a story as interesting as possible, um, you want to make sure that the first thing that the hero tries to do to, to win fails. And the second thing he tries to do to win 
fails. And probably the third and fourth, depending on how long you are, how long you're running on your, if you're writing a short story or a book. Right. Um, and then finally, when you re reach the end of your word count, then he succeeds. <laughs> then he succeeds. <laughs> <laughs> and that would be the try-fail cycle. But the thing is, is that oh, uh, an example they gave us at Writers of the Future, uh, I, I went to the Writers of the Future workshop a few years back, is they talk about a man from all, for all seasons. And the main character in there has to, by the end of it, decide that he would rather die than betray his honor. But before he gets to that decision, he tries every single thing he can think of to get uh, acquitted in that court case. He, you know, he pulls every trick out of the book he can until finally gets to the point where it's like, that's it. I have to either betray what I believe in and, and live or stick to it and die. And that's okay. you know, when he gets to it. But he has a lot of try-fails up to there. Let's take time out for a moment and uh, hear from our sponsor. Let's all go to the lobby. Uh, this week's Writing Excuses is brought to you by Bob Defendi, maker of fine recital thermometers and recorder of a brilliant podcast book thingy. Bob, you want to tell us about it? It's called Death by Cliché. It is a thinly veiled... Uh... Uh, exploration of the madness inside my head. You can find it. It's a free audiobook, and you can download it at playtesting.net. Awesome. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. Okay, that was a lovely commercial break. Thank you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now, we, uh, we, we mentioned, uh, Bob mentioned the, uh, the, the romance formula, the boy meets girl and loses girl, and then they get together again. Um, I've heard this referred to a lot as, uh, if, when it's done wrong, as the idiot plot. And uh, the reason, the, the difference between those, because boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl again. Again, that's an archetype that's been around forever. Yeah. But you watch a really bad romantic comedy, and you, it, they just feel like idiots. And the reason is that the plot is driving the characters rather than the other way around. And in fact, I'm going to say... Which means the formula is driving exactly. the characters. I'm I took say, the words right out of yeah, your mouth. Yeah, you go. <laughs> and I'm going to say that applies to any formula, not just to the, to the romance right. thing. If you feel like you have to force your characters to do something idiotic in order to make your story work, it's because you're trying to force them into a formula rather than letting the story flow naturally from them. So let's ask this question. When should you consciously you know, look at the formula and try to use it. What, what sort of situations are writers going to get themselves into when they, they need to look at these formulas, they need to know these formulas, and they need to start patterning their, their work? Well, I start looking at the, at the structure very early when I'm writing. Um, yeah. I have a four-stage outlining process, and it's stage two where I make sure that everything contains every story element that it needs to be a complete story. At that point in my, <clears throat> in my plotting, I've got it all broken out, and there's an overall storyline, and there's a romance storyline, there's a main character storyline, and there's an impact character storyline, and all of these different storylines, I haven't filtered them together. But I make sure that each one of them that's, that I want to have a complete arc has a beginning, a middle, and an end, has tri-fails, has everything that I want it to have before I you know, basically shuffle them together like a deck of cards. Mm -hmm. Okay. Dan, yeah, what do you I, think? I agree. For me, I look at formula and structure very, very early when I'm first outlining a book. Um, because later on, when I'm actually doing the writing or I'm working on you know, the characters or the dialogue, that's when I want the uh, story to flow out of the characters rather than out of the formula. 
And so getting that formula out of the way and using it as a skeleton, I can then deviate from it later on in whatever method works best rather than confining myself to it or taking a more organic story and trying to cram a formula on top of it later on. And I find that after you've done several of these, by the, when I get to the, that stage in my, in my plotting, 85% of the pieces are in it. You've already about. got it. You're not yeah. missing anything. I'll have, I'll have one plot line that doesn't have any of them, but there'll be like three that are complete and has every, every element hit just because I was trying to tell a good story when I was outlining it and I came up with, you know, there's a nice twist in the middle, there's a nice reveal at the end, everything. Okay. Nice complication towards the beginning. Yeah, for me, I look at the formula and the, you know, the, the general sketch at the very beginning when I'm, I'm thinking, all right, where do I want this story to end? But because I'm writing serially and I don't have time to go back and uh, <laughs> don't have time to go back and rewrite anything, uh, I get to about halfway through the story and then I invite Bob and Dan over to my house <laughs> for five hours. This is of Dan Willis. Oh not yeah, Dan, Dan, Wells. Dan Willis, not Dan. He, he doesn't want me messing with his stories. Uh, they would get very scary. I should have so you write Oktoberfest for there's me a, something. There's a vampire duck as a main character. <laughs> But uh, yeah, and then Bob, you did exactly what you've described, uh, where you wrote down all of your own, you know, all of the things that you saw happening in these stories, um, and then you established, what, you know, what needed to come next, which I think was was brilliant. It was very helpful. Now let's ask the question that everybody needs to have answered: How do you prevent from yourself from sounding cliche, from from sounding like a retread of George Lucas, which is in turn a retread of half a dozen things? I'd like to steal my answer from Orson Scott Card. He says, throw out the first thing, your first idea because it's been done before, and throw out your second idea because it's been done before, and your third idea, which you think is really, really good, it's probably been done before. Around fourth or fifth idea, you start coming up with something that's different enough that, that uh, it's going to surprise your audience. Um, for my answer to this question, I'm going to go back to the point I already hit of... Uh, Letting the story flow out of the characters. Make sure your characters are really round. Make sure they're really deep and really interesting. And then they will, by themselves, start telling a more interesting story. Don't allow your characters to be slaves to a plot. Try to make it the other way around. I promised that I was going to use Aragon as a tool. Um, <laughs> Sorry. And, and and it works like this. Uh, you know, I can't even remember the author's name. Uh, Christopher Paolini. Christopher Paolini. Um, Christopher Paolini did a wonderful job of understanding all of the formulaic elements for epic fantasy, and mm -hmm. including them. Yeah. He did not do as good a job of masking the fact <laughs> that he was writing from a formula. Aragon is a great book to read to look at the naked template for the formulas <laughs> because true. you have the you have the humble farm boy, you have the mentor who dies. I'm sorry, did I just give something away? <laughs> <laughs> um, you have the powerful ally. Mm -hmm. uh, you have the witch king. Um, well, and now now let's be fair. Um, you know, for most of us growing up, we read you know, the, the Pride Inn Chronicles, or we read The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings, which told us that same story. That was our introduction to fantasy for a lot of people, especially in our generation. 
there is a new generation that is getting the same introduction to the same principles through Aragon, and I think that's fine. You know, we're we're not trying to denigrate Aragon here. I don't think Although it's as I would well written. Just go back and watch Star Wars. Well, well yeah, <laughs> naturally. Yeah. Um, but uh, if Star Wars had a dragon in it, my buddy, my buddy has at a rancor. Was reading the first book, and his friend was reading the second book, and he Rancors said to him, "Have they met Yoda yet?" And the fellow reading the second book goes, yes, how did you know? He goes, because I'm reading Star Wars, so you have got to be reading The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, um, this has been Writing Excuses. Uh, tune in next week when you'll hear Bob Defendi say, that's not my thermometer. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 